In the late 90s, I spent a lot of time in game stores buying and playing collectible card games. Magic the Gathering had come out in 93, so by the time I showed up five years later, there were countless competitors. Although a few of them are still in print, like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh!, the vast majority have been forgotten, even though some of them were quite popular at the time. My guest today is Tom Bronlick, one of the designers of the Star Trek and Star Wars collectible card games. Both were published by a company called Decipher, and both are incredibly out of print in 2020. Although I have an embarrassingly large collection of dead card games, I'm particularly drawn to these two because of how different and complex they are. You don't merely play characters and use them to attack your opponent. You play characters, equip them with items, load them into a sand crawler, drive them to Mos Eisley, transfer them to the Millennium Falcon, and fly them to the goddamn Death Star. It's not a game, it's a story. This is the Zachtronics Podcast. are you and what do you do? <laughs> well, uh, my career was in game design, um, starting way back in the late 70s and early 80s, where uh, I was at school as a journalism major, but uh, a, a local man invented a game called Pente. And because I was a very good chess player, he got me involved in it. And um, it became a, a nationally selling game. And uh, Somehow I ended up with my career in the game industry instead of journalism. So here I am. <laughs> so you worked, per, like that was your job, working with the Pente person? Yeah. At first I, I wrote a strategy book for him and uh, because I have a master rating in chess. And that eventually morphed into me doing other jobs for them and being hired by the company. And it was actually the the best-selling adult board game in 1982, the year before Trivial Pursuit just blew everything away and was sold to Parker Brothers. And after that, um, I messed around in the game industry and eventually um, got a business partner named Raleigh Tesh, and we formed our own design company. It was an independent firm uh, located up in Seattle or nearby Seattle. And... Uh, we worked on many projects and we would try to license them to game companies the same way that an author tries to sell a book to, uh, you know, book publishers. Okay. So what, what year was this? That was in the middle 80s. Okay. How old were you guys? Uh, we were, let's see, we were in our late 20s then, I guess. Okay. So when you started working on Pente and when you did that, like how old were you? I was still in college then. I, I was working with them while I was at the same time as trying to finish my degree. But you were seriously into chess already. Yeah, I spent most of my time playing chess, really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, uh, I, w I went to college with Keith, and we spent most of our time playing games, but they were a lot less uh, intellectual than chess. <laughs> still maybe, uh, maybe uh, educational for where yeah, we ended yeah. up. That's true. It's still more, a lot more shooting than <laughs> yeah. than in chess. Um, okay, so you guys are so you're in your late twenties. You're in the Seattle area, and you're you guys are designing and then selling ideas for board games. Is that the whole right. business? Yeah. Is that a profitable? Like, how does how does that work? That that like 
if if we, if somebody wants to go back in time and do that as their job, like what what are the economics of that? Well, you have to realize that the game industry is an entertainment industry, you know, so it's very fashion oriented, mm-hmm. and we we had contacts with all the major game companies, and they would meet with us a few times a year and say, we want games that do this or or on this subject, you know, and of course they're following the fads, right? And so we would try to design a clever new game that fit what they were wanting to do. Um, But of course, it was always the brand new thing that they couldn't predict that really would make the money. But even so, um, we were able to license enough games here or there that we survived. (laughs) We, We made enough money to keep doing it and having fun. Interesting. So how like, how many how many game ideas did you sell a year? How much would you make for selling one of them? Well, it varied so much. We would sell two or three, maybe four a year. Some of them, though, would be just small, marginal things. And others we would have more uh, hopes for. And, uh, you know, sometimes they would hit fairly big. Um, we had a... My favorite one was a design. We had the idea of doing two-player games with scratch-off technology. Oh, my God. The Dr. Scratchies Dr. or whatever? Dr. Scratchies, yeah. You, you know oh, it. Holy shit. Yeah, I found those at like a, like a dollar store after yeah. they'd kind of... Oh, my God. They're impossible to... I, I spent like oh, too much time searching online trying to find these. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you designed them. Yeah, <laughs> we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, it was... Uh, I had this theory that new technologies were the key to s- some new hot idea, you know. And at that mm-hmm. time, scratch-off stuff uh, was pretty new. And so I, I told my partner, Raleigh, I said, why don't we try to design an actual game? Because usually these things were just little random scratch-off things, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, what's what's design an actual interesting game to play with this? And uh, we uh, there was a company there in Seattle that, made those things and we went and talked to them and figured out how to do it and made prototypes and got it on the market and it was pretty successful for a few years i think the reason why you can't find them much anymore is that after about five or ten years the scratch off stuff starts to not be very good anymore so Mm, yeah yeah and they all get scratched off the fact that they're one-time use means that there's no second like market for them Exactly. That's what the companies, the first companies we showed it to said, you can't sell that as one-time use. Nobody will do it. <laughs> and nobody had heard of these legacy games that they have now. But uh, they, um, the, the key was they were so inexpensive, you know, yeah. on a per game basis, you actually paying a lot less than you do to buying a $20 board game. That makes so. sense. A couple of years back, Keith and I tried to prototype a game called, we called like Red Tape or Bureaucracy Hero, where you had a deck of forms that you drew from, like they were, they were, you, you, you had, a, it was like a deck of random forms that were flipped upside down. So you drew cart, like you drew off, like you pulled them off, like they were a deck of cards, uh-huh. but they were forms that everybody filled out while playing the game. Hmm. So it was like a, like a competitive tax, you know, tax filing game or something. <laughs> Never really figured out how to make it that fun. But, um, but it was totally the idea of like a destructible deck as you play. And uh, everybody yeah. we told about it was incredibly offended by the fact that you would burn through the resources as you were playing the game and that you wouldn't be able to play anymore. As if people play these board games that they buy now like a million times or something. Right. Yeah. Usually you play them like a couple times. Right. I, I played some of these so-called legacy games like Pandemic Legacy recently. Mm-hmm that are what a hundred dollar games and you, you only play them <laughs> once but you you get like 80 hours of play out of them so it's pretty good and they're yeah. fun 
are there are there any more Doctor Doctor Scratchov's uh, stories there? We can go on if there's nothing else to say, but I, I do. Not really. <laughs> I have a very fond spot for those. The thing about it was they were very fun to design because they were only five by five inches square, mm. and there were certain features that you had to have, and yet at the same time we wanted to make them interesting. You know, and, yeah. And uh, for example, one of them. Uh, was a st- actual strategy game that relied on the so-called four-color theorem from mathematics, that four colors oh, okay. was enough to to color any map, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we did some very clever things that uh, I was proud of in those games. They were fun. That's really cool. Do you, do you have any of the designs, like kicking around in a notebook or something? Oh, we had so many great designs that never saw the light of day. We also even worked on some toys, and one of our... One of our toys was a throwing toy that I was sure was going to be the next Frisbee. You know, it was it was an awesome throwing toy. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the major companies were interested in it. But the bottom line was they were worried about people getting injured, you know. <laughs> it wasn't lawn darts, was it? <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was in fact, uh, relatively safe as far as those things go. But, um, you know, it was as safe as a Frisbee. Okay. But we couldn't get them to, you know, they said, what if somebody throws it right in another person's face? And it'll earn them. <laughs> I said, well, don't do that. <laughs> wow. So it never got to the market. And, and every time we had a, a prototype of that, and every time we played it, people would stop their cars and come over and ask where they could buy them, you know. That's wild. And it would have been big, but unfortunately, the lawyers killed it. Was this before or after the uh, the aerobi? It was after the aerobi. Okay. The people, like, customers were primed for a new throwing toy. Well, I don't know, but uh, throwing toys in general were very hot in those days. I don't know how they are now, but there's a lot of a lot of clever things came out. But this one was one that I, I loved, and it broke my heart that we never could sell it. Interesting. So the, uh, when I was in college, I... <laughs> I was obsessed with laser tag and uh-huh. I had like a design for like a cuz like all the laser tag toys they sold were really simplistic and so I really wanted to make like a like a sophisticated laser tag toy for the video game generation and I actually like worked with some toy guys from New York City uh uh-huh. to try to like pitch it to a toy company and so that was this is the uh-huh. only exposure I've ever had to the toy business but it's it's very different from video games especially now and like you were saying like it's uh-huh. all about your relationship with these big companies and you just kind of yeah. pitch stuff to them and maybe Maybe they'll buy it. Were there royalties on these? Like if, yes. if they, okay. Were they like it, substantial? Yeah, it works in the form of royalties and and you generally would if they bought the idea, they would give you a small advance to kind of help you finish the design, you know. And mm-hmm. then and then if it met their approval, it would uh get on the market and hopefully sell well and then you can make some money with it. But um yeah, I mean the, the big companies in the game industry at that time they were all cannibalizing each other. You know, they were buying each other up. We, I knew very well a guy named Sid Saxon, who uh, was the dean of game designs, you know, he all the way back to Mousetrap and a lot of the games Ooh, from okay. the 50s and 60s. Um, and he said in, in those days, there was something like 40 game companies and he could sell dozens of game designs every year, you know. But by the time in the 80s when we were there, you know, uh, Hasbro bought Parker Brothers, so Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers came together and so on. And there was really only half a dozen game companies at that time for traditional games, I mean. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so it was a little difficult. There was a lot of competition among the independent game design people um, to get relatively few slots. But if you did get a slot, you know, you might uh, have better chances for success. I have two follow-up questions on that. So how many people like you were there in the industry, do you think, at that time? Only about 20. Okay. It's very... <laughs> did you all a very know small there? group. Oh, yeah. In fact, <laughs> we, we hosted every year at the American uh, Toy Fair in New York in, in February. We hosted a party for all these people. For all 20 game designers <laughs> yeah. in the world. <laughs> yeah. We had a lot of fun. And, God. Um, that's unfathomable. Like, if I go to an event now, just a random industry event for game stuff, there are going to be way more than 20 game designers in that room. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, this is a segment of the game industry. That's true. I'm, I'm sure that video games and computer games were a lot different. <laughs> but I had another 20. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so then the second question was, um, oh, the, so none of the big companies had their own game designers in-house. They did. They actually oh, okay. did have them. They had... Uh, some very talented game people, um, but they were they recognized that they were part of a large company and were limited by the bureaucracy of the company, and they needed the outdoor ideas to come from other people. Interesting. And so, if you could get to be trusted by them, they would look at all the ideas you wanted to show them whenever you wanted to, and if they thought they were good, you know, it would go from there. But um, there was still quite a few games developed in-house as well, especially if, for example, they bought a license for, I don't know, SpongeBob or something like that and had to design a game, they could mm -hmm. do that, you know. But um, they were looking to the outsiders for more groundbreaking designs, you know, something that had hit potential, so. Interesting. Okay, I guess we should keep going with the, the history of how we get to the, the Star Trek and Star Wars card games. Sure. Well, um, we did that for many years based there in Seattle. And um, I think you may recall a game called Magic the Gathering came out <laughs> in 1993, I think. And uh, the Wizards of the Coast people were across Puget Sound in Seattle. And uh, so we became aware of that rather early. My partner, Raleigh Tesh, uh, called me in one day and said, hey, there's this interesting game over there that is played with randomized decks and cards that come packaged in like trading cards, you know, in randomness. And, and he, he said, I think we could do something like that. But um, at the time, we uh, had uh, been working a lot with a company called Decipher in Virginia. They're, uh, they're, they were very good friends of ours. We did a lot of stuff with them. And it, the previous year, we had designed a Star Trek game with them. It's called the Star Trek VCR board game. <laughs> yes, and, uh, I, I am familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of wacky, but uh, we had a good time with that. And we knew that they had the in with the Paramount Studios, you know, for Star Trek. So we said, why don't we design a collectible card game that's based on Star Trek, and do it with Decipher, and we... You know, the light bulb went on over our heads, <laughs> and uh, it was not so easy because we had to understand the technical aspects of those games, which are very complicated. The math of how the, the printing works, you know, to generate mm, rare yes. cards and, and uncommon cards and so forth. And we actually uh, hired a, a guy uh, who knew about that stuff, whose name was Darwin Bromley. He was uh, president of Mayfair Games, a small game company 
back in Chicago. And uh, he came out and worked with us. We figured out um, not how Magic did it, but we figured out how we would have to do it for, for something like Star Trek. And when we had all that put together, we made a proposal to Decipher, and they immediately jumped on it. And they loved the idea. So that's how it got started. Wow. Okay. So that's, I think that's, it's, we don't have to talk about specifically right now, but there's definitely a theme here with stuff we've talked about, which is how the, like the production technologies available in like informed what you made and what you were able to make. And yes. I, I think that's, that's definitely like a fascinating thing that I want to keep track of as we, as we talk about this. Um, you came up with the idea, the light bulb went off and then you, you did some work and then you bring this product to market. Like what happens in that space of like the design? Like what was the design process like for the, the Star Trek card game? Well, it was very long and very grueling. <laughs> we, uh, How long? we came up, well, it was about a year. Okay. Um, we came up with it early in the year and managed to get it out by Christmas time, you know. Um, first of all, we had to come up with a basic concept because we didn't want to copy what, you know, Magic had mm. done. But Magic was very nice, simple game, but it was essentially just a battle between two wizards, you know, yeah. simple battle game. Whereas I insisted that Star Trek had to have what I called the correct flavor of Star Trek in it, you know, and, and there might be battles in Star Trek, but the essence of Star Trek is, you know, flying your ship around the galaxy and having adventures, going to planets and, you know, meeting all kinds of strange people and doing things like that, being on missions and so forth. Absolutely. So that was my main contribution to the game was to kind of insist on, on that. <laughs> and uh, I came up with um, the basic concept that ended up being used of a space line of planets that is laid out on the table. And then now they're called missions, but I called them planets at the time. And you would have ships and you would put personnel on your ships and you'd fly around the space line and try to achieve the requirements of various missions that are listed on the planet cards, you know. And that is essentially the heart of the game. And I believe that if we did it right, it would have a really good flavor of Star Trek, which is what we were going for. And uh, I think we achieved that. A lot of people remarked about that. A lot of Star Trek fans who otherwise really aren't into games like this game because of that reason, you know? Yeah. So that that's the thing that's definitely most remarkable to me and with like the Star Trek and Star Wars card games is that they, I, I, the term that we would use in the office is like they're simulationist to a degree that most other games are not like others, you know, it, it varies how much. And this is one of the, the sort of other themes that we want to talk about is that like there's a spectrum of how tightly coupled your game mechanics are to the theme of the game that you can have like a German style board game where it's just like a bunch of mechanics that work really well and then you slap a theme on top uh, and then there's right. the other side where it's like you you really build a game that's all about the theme and like just so the mechanics so like exist purely to deeply evoke the the dynamics and mechanics of the theme and that's very much where Keith and I fall as game designers that all of our stuff is like almost to a fault uh, like based on the theme and and when I when I became familiar with the Star Trek and Star Wars card games, like that's what I absolutely love about them is they're they're almost simulationist to a fault. <laughs> it's it's wild. Yeah. Like the Star Trek, I was familiar with the Star Wars game uh, 
from being a kid and encountering it in the wild. I never experienced the Star Trek game, and I wasn't really into Star Trek until I became an adult. And I didn't play the Star Trek game until very recently with Keith. And it was just wild because it's like a role-playing game, almost. Like, we were barely interacting with each other. It doesn't feel like you're fighting, but you can, like, kind of sabotage the other player. And, like, you just have all this stuff going on. There's all this equipment and ships and people and places, and they're all interacting and doing Mm -hmm. telling this little, like, messed up procedural story. And, like, so I think Keith played as, like, the Romulans and spent the whole game with, like, two guys and, like, a like an on-fire science vessel, like, barely being able to do anything. <laughs> it was wild, right? Like, magic has its yeah. own weird stuff, but it's just not, like, it's like, oh, you have, like, a cat with a sword or whatever. Like, they have those kinds of problems, but it's not anywhere yeah. as close as, as cool. But, <laughs> right. In this game, you tell a Star Trek story. It might be kind of a weird story, <laughs> like you just said, but it's a Star Trek-y story. You're flying around, you're trying to do something, you meet some dilemmas that you've seen in the show, you know, yeah. you have to yeah. overcome those and so on, and you might get attacked by somebody, but um, you felt like you were making your own little silly episode of Star Trek, And but we didn't look at it as a simulation per se, I, I that's why I coined it having the right flavor of Star Trek, mm-hmm. because there's really only a few things besides the actual look of the cards. There's only a few game elements that are Trekky, you know, designed to deliver that flavor, you know. And of course, you also get that flavor from the cards themselves, which um, were beautifully done by Decipher. The, the art department there, run by Dan Burns, is fantastic, and they, they would not settle on you know for half good on on anything they really worked hard on the beauty of the cards and the functionality of the cards and um each card had you know things taken directly from the show that people recognize and 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 loved and it's kind of nice to hold them in your hands and take a look at something you only see briefly in the show you know but i wanted to say during the development process that you were asking about for months at a time i spent uh, in Virginia at Decipher's organization in a back room with 160 some odd uh, VHS tapes <laughs> of all the Star Trek episodes. And we, we got them from Paramount because they had a time codes on the, on there, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, so I was asked to go through every episode <laughs> and, and, pick out everything that might be a card, you know, someday, you know? Oh God. Incredible. So, so of course you had all the main characters, but you had each episode, you have some new temporary characters and (laughs) maybe a new ship and maybe a new item or new piece of equipment or something, you know, some glowing box (laughs) in the background. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, like the uh, the show, what was it called? The one with Fajo, the collector. And he had all these little, collectible items uh-huh. that he showed the data and mm-hmm. one of them was a roger maris baseball card you know a rookie card for roger maris and so of course i took a picture of that you know so all of these things that i thought would be possible cards i would take a frame grab of that and i put them in this giant spreadsheet that i developed with i don't know how many thousand possibilities in there in each one i would uh, have embedded that frame grab as well as whatever information I knew about it, you know, and maybe jotted down some ideas for what this card might do, you know. And uh, so I spent months and months doing that. And um, it was almost like I was kidnapped and held hostage (laughs) in there. (laughs) So, yeah, but I enjoyed that so much because, you know, I was 
I'm old enough I can remember the original series when it first came out, even though I was a little kid. And so I've been a Star Trek fan my whole life. I'm, I'm not really a Trekkie, but or Trekker, as they prefer, but um, I, I loved it, and so I enjoyed doing all that work quite a lot. So that that's really interesting, because I feel the same way about a lot of the stuff that we make for our games about, is that I'm not, like, I don't go in being obsessed with this thing, but... I'm, I'm interested enough to make a game about it. And as I make the game, I research it a bunch. And so you sort of fall in love with stuff as you research it. Mm-hmm. And that so sounds kind of like your experience. Yeah, I went from being a, you know, just kind of a normal Star Trek fan to being a bit of a well-educated <laughs> guy who could probably win a trivia contest on it somewhere. But That's great. Uh, okay. Even so, there's so many more fans. But one of the most gratifying things about the the game was that the fans loved it. You know, they uh, liked all the little details and, and recognized all the little items that you just briefly see during the show. Yeah. They, they loved all of that stuff. You know, even to some extent, we were able to get prop pictures from Paramount of, Mm. um, they didn't keep a lot of their Star Trek props, but they did keep some, and we got access to that and had nice light, lighted pictures of a, a phaser or whatever, you know, and... Um, we, we were actually, I'm pretty sure we commented on those those card pictures, because it's like, where did they get these, like, loving shots of these, like, guns from Star <laughs> Wars or whatever? Yeah. Um, wow. And, and that whole process happened again when we did Star Wars, except it was much more intense. Interesting. Because the, the whole Star Wars thing was very different. We were just working with the three movies, the f- three original movies at that time. Okay. Well, let's, let's finish up with Star Trek first. I want to see if make sure I have any, any more Star Trek specific questions. Um, I, have, okay. I have one question okay, about... Go for it. Um, so it sounds like you were working pretty closely with Paramount in a lot of ways. Did they have any oversight in terms of like... Uh, this, you know, it has to be like Star Trek. You like, you know, if you had made a game that was all about fighting or something, would they say this is not the spirit of Star Trek or something like that? They would. They had a a guy there named Michael Okuda, who is kind of their um, their guru, the keeper of the faith for Star Trek. You know, he wrote the um, Star Trek encyclopedias and things like that. You know, knew all, knew all about it and. Um, you kind of had to get his backing, which wasn't too hard to do because we we were simpatico with our ideas. But um, uh, you did have to approve everything uh, to get their approval on, on everything you did. And especially if there was a character who um, did not have an official name maybe in the script, but we wanted to have a card for that character, we would typically we would propose a name and they would have to approve all of those things. And uh, so some of our common cards were really just background characters that we happened to have nice pictures of and thought would make good cards, you know. And one of them, uh, uh, I got to propose a name, and I chose my brother-in-law's name. (laughs) (laughs) And it stuck, so it's in there, you know. So that made the greatest Christmas present ever was to give him that card. Probably a better gift if he's a Star Trek fan. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't really, but he still appreciates it. It's like naming a star after somebody. <laughs> yeah. It's the thought that counts. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good working with them. It was a little tedious, of course, because they're a big corporation. And uh, early on in the process, 
when Raleigh and I started working on it, we had some questions. And so we just called up Paramount and started talking to somebody there, you know. And uh, five minutes after we hung up, we got a call and Decipher said, you cannot do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You have to go through, we have to go through us and we have to go through this guy and then this guy talks to him. And so that's how it happened. So that's wild. We... Yeah, I I tried. I've, I've for the past couple of years, I've been trying to get somebody at CBS to uh, like seriously talk to us about making a Star Trek game, and they're like, "It's very difficult." We were uh, not successful. <laughs> it is, yeah. You need to have some kind of an in with the right people at those places, yeah. and they have to respect the kind of games you make, which is not the case with us. <laughs> well, if you know, if if it starts to make money, they'll start yeah, to respect. That's it, the problem. So. <laughs> They, uh, they seem to be going after, like, Star Trek action games, which seems very perverse to me, but that's also where they've taken Star Trek in recent years, so, which also seems perverse to me. <laughs> I'm a bitter Star Trek True. fan. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, okay, I'm, I'm fa- I guess I don't know if there's more to say about it, but I'm fascinated with your commitment to theme. Um, I yeah. wasn't necessarily expecting that, knowing that you have a, you're a chess guy as your, your first love in games. Yeah, but I've been working on lots of games designs and and I, f- I feel like that's important that a game has a personality. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Even even some of the abstract games that we did, I I wanted to make them at least look unique, you know, and have kind of yeah. a um, flavor all their own, you know. Yeah, that's one, that's one of my favorite things. I'm not a big abstract game person, but I do love the uh, like ones that have like a real feel to them because I that's right. That's, it, it's I I can't even describe it. There's something magical about it, right? Like something that's just like a boring abstract game is uninteresting. You don't just want a math puzzle. You want something that feels like you're experiencing this this artifact, this thing. Right. Fascinating. Chess is like that, and and games like Go, for example, with the beautiful black and white pieces mm. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. They have the a feel to them that's unique. That's interesting. It's it's fun to just feel the game while you're playing. Yeah, it, you know, this makes me feel really warm and fuzzy inside. Usually, I'm afraid of abstract games, people, <laughs> just being like math robots. How, so, how does how does chess make you feel? I know it's like a huge, crazy, open-ended question, but like when you think about like the pieces and like the physical experience of playing chess, like how would you succinctly describe how it makes you feel? Well, it's chess has um, has its own personality, but it brings out the personality of the players. It's a two-person experience, you know. Yeah. And uh, you tell a story with your opponent. I'm not talking about good players, you know, yeah. not people <laughs> who are just playing around. But you know, if you go to a tournament and watch two masters playing, it's fascinating. You know, they one guy wrote a book called called it the the battle of ideas in chess. You know, <laughs> one guy's trying to make one thing happen, you know, and his opponent's trying to block that and make something else happen, you know. But chess has a real personality and and you you really feel the pieces on the board you know the pawns create what i call a topography on the board they're the they're the hills and valleys that you have to go around you know mm-hmm. and then the pieces have their personality and you know there's um you you in some sense you kind of talk to your pieces when you play you know and you, you say i don't know what to do you know i guess my knight is not real happy over here in the corner i'm gonna get it over there you know he you know it's like i say i want to ask that knight where he would rather be you know <laughs> and get him there wow. <laughs> so it has when you get to that level it it becomes very fascinating and of course it also has geometric beauty to it 
I'm a little envious. This this like secret world is accessible to you. <laughs> I'm the opposite of being good at chess. <laughs> uh, so is I mean like is does any of this sort of design thinking like apply when you make like the Star Trek card game, for instance? Like, do you think about designing a game like the Star Trek card game in, in a similar way? Or are they different in a major way? Well, it's pretty different, but um, uh, you are interested in the feel and the f flavor, like I talked about, and uh, you see that particularly in the Star Wars game with the design for it. We'll get to that in a minute, but um, they worked really hard on trying to get the dark side and the light side oh, yeah. to have various personality to them, and that was no accident. It wasn't just, you know, thrown out there the art department worked really hard on that for weeks to get the right flavor for the imagery usually these things uh, are brought out in the gameplay but the design has to allow them to be brought out in the gameplay that makes sense okay so i have two more star trek questions then we can move on uh it's so the first one so there there are a bunch of expansions for all of these games did you like how much of the star trek card game did you work on and like at some point did you hand it off to other people to work on the expansions Yes. Uh, I worked on the first three sets, basically, which were all Star Trek Next Generation. Okay. And um, and even the third set I didn't work on very much because I was busy with the Star Wars already by that time. But uh, I was basically doing the, the original design. Of course, the key is to make it so that it, it had enough depth to it that it could expand you know, yeah. as long as much as you wanted to expand it, right? So we talked a lot about that in the early design phase. How do we do that? And um, but I, I worked especially on the first set of 363 cards, and um, and then my work on it reduced as I got drawn away to other things. Um, it was kind of passed off to Bill Martinson, who uh, was hired by Decipher, and Bill was a brilliant guy who did a great job managing that project and um you know after a while they were doing stuff i had no idea what they were doing you know <laughs> the, they were sit, putting out <laughs> expansion sets that i'd never heard of and then it was there and they had a, a star trek team going evan lorenz was also involved he also i think managed the uh you know late late in the d design life of the product they came out with a second edition of all this stuff mm, yes and he worked on that. And the idea was to get rid of some of the uh, bloated, uh, overgrown nature of the original sets that, you know, that brings up the main problem with all these games that we had to face and try to solve from the beginning, which was the fact that you wanted to have expansions, but how do you keep balance in the game with each expansion, yeah, right? That's a, yeah, definitely. We can talk more about that in Star Wars because I think it's a more interesting discussion. Yeah, I agree. Using it as an example. Okay. And then, so my last question is totally a bullshit question, but you mentioned Fajo the Collector. So there's mm -hmm. the, the titular Fajo Collection. Yeah. Were you involved with that or was that after you switched over? Um, that was more of a marketing department <laughs> thing, you know. <laughs> I, I love it because it's, it's crazy, right? Like that is not something that's like a game design first kind of idea. No, I think it was... Uh, uh, Warren Holland and the uh, he's the president of Decipher. He's uh, brilliant and very artistic, and he loves to do unique things. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he you know he does art projects, you know, and loves wacky art projects. And uh, so this I don't remember who 
brought up that idea, but when it did come up, he loved it, and they went well into that. And the art department there also loved doing things like that because it allowed them to express all kinds of their creativity as well. So the great thing about Decipher is they're such a creative company, and they were then. And um, we had also a great working relationship with them because we'd already known them for 10 years. Ah, yes. And he's one of my best friends, in fact. So we we came up with lots of wacky ideas for things, and some of them actually happened. (laughs) Yeah, later on, we did a Tribbles uh, game, for example, that was (laughs) a lot of fun. And we also did a... um, a, a game for um, Austin Powers, you know. <laughs> yes, I've seen that. I have, I have a deck of that that I have not yet played. Yeah, and we <laughs> we we very badly wanted to do a Spaceballs. Oh my uh, god! <laughs> set, you know. I don't think we ever really got to do that. But that's too uh, bad. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, and then I just want to, for people who are listening, so the Fajo collection was, was it like nine or 18 or somewhere around that many, um, like novelty uh-huh. cards? Yeah. Like one was just written entirely in Klingon and one of them was like a black hole where the card art was getting sucked into it or. Yeah. They were all kind of, kind of wacky card ideas that had come up and were just not really appropriate to be real cards, but we just made kind of collectible things out of them. You know, that the idea was you're not really going to play with these. It's just something to have, you know, these weird little things. Yeah. And they came in like a little portfolio with like like little card binder yeah. inserts or whatever. So it really was like an art piece. Yeah. Right? And, and like they're and, and, and like signed or whatever, like they're, yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's so much more creative and artistic than like something that i could see magic do like magic has unglued which are like functional funny cards from like you know around that same time period but this was just like like a weird like it was like a collectible art piece or it's it's like indescribable i can't even well that it shows though that the game is is really two things at once it's it's collectible cards on the one hand and an interesting game on the other hand yeah Uh, exactly a lot in fact a lot of people collected two full sets one to keep and one to play with you know mm, yeah which is amazing it just amazed me at the time that people would do that but um uh, a lot of them said they liked the cards better than the trading cards that were available at the time <laughs> you know so i think there's there's something really I, okay so this is kind of at the level at which i engaged with a lot of this stuff when i was younger is that you you, you know the games for these things are hard to play and it's hard to collect like a full deck but like just looking at them as an artifact they're mm-hmm. they're incredible because they're a balance of art and like substance and this is like i i had trading cards as a kid but i was never really into them because like they didn't really do anything and as somebody who grew up like in the games generation something that's merely a picture of your of a character is not it's not the same as like a picture of a character with stats and functionality. Right. I, I had like some like Japanese Pokemon cards. Like I don't read Japanese, you know, like I played Pokemon, but like it's just you just it's just it's an it's an artifact. It goes so far and beyond like a like a mere trading card. And it's and it, exactly there's like a whole theory of like otaku consumption of media and how that like bled over from Japan into America and about how like it's not just about knowing it's not just about like retelling and knowing linear stories but the idea that stories are actually like databases of characters and events and stuff and you can access it non-linearly and 
like compare characters and do all that stuff and like a card game totally is the it's a trading card for like the otaku generation that it's filled with stats and numbers and you can compare them and you don't even have to necessarily play the game to appreciate that (laughs) and the decipher cards really were beautiful i mean like they this is a time when like magic the first magic cards looked awful (laughs) right and like the star trek and star wars cards are like they look futuristic they've got lots of good color coding and they're they're great yeah the art department there was fantastic um, okay, I guess we should go on to Star Wars, because that was originally what I, I brought you on for. Um, okay. So, I guess we could talk through the history of it. There's definitely, like, gameplay similarities between the Star Trek and Star Wars, but there's presumably some sort of evolution from one to the other. I noticed the uh, the planet line or mission line carried over, in particular. Yeah, in a simplified form, I guess. Because they're not missions, um, they're just pla- they're merely locations, Right. Right. You have to have some kind of focus for the play, really, you know. Yeah. There's not a lot of locations in Star Wars, you know, there's a few planets and things like that. But when it came to doing Star Wars, we had a year behind us with Star Trek. And um, Star Trek fans don't like to admit this, but Star Wars is a lot bigger than Star <laughs> Trek. So, so we knew we had our work cut out for us. For the design work, we brought in a guy named Jerry Darcy, who was a young fan who happened to catch us at the right time when we wanted a guy who knew all about Star Wars, you know, and uh, he came on. We uh, also worked with a guy named Richard Borg, who's one of those independent designers that I talked about. He helped us early on in the early phases of the game. Uh, Again, my job initially was to kind of create the bones of the game and help do the design uh all the technical um finding of cards you know in the movies (laughs) and uh and then once that had been figured out and got started a lot of these other people did the actual work of you know bringing these cards to life and figuring out the, the matrix of numbers and so on my initial thing was that for the, to get the right flavor for Star Wars, unlike Trek, which was mission oriented, you know, and it kind of adventures in space, Star Wars to me was all about the force, okay. right? Using the force. And so my big contribution to the design was the concept that I think is kind of the signature feature of Star Wars, which was you use the deck of cards as your force right mm-hmm. it's not it's not just a, a stockpile of cards to draw from it represents your force and when it gets depleted you you're dead you know the opponent wins when you play a card in the game and it requires some power behind it to make it work in magic they would have these you know some tokens that you could use for things like that but um, in this case you would have to take cards off the top of your deck, which means you expending force, in other words. And um, if you're lucky, they get put back on the bottom of the deck when your turn is done. So that was, quote, using the force, right, to do that. And um, the gameplay kind of centered around that concept. I think it worked out very well. And, and at the same time, we had already started running up against issues with Star Trek about balance Mm. because um, there was a big thing. um, The the main difference in many ways between a game like Magic and some of the other games of this genre that were out there and Star Trek was that um, Magic, 
you know, they put out these cards and they have these various functions written on them. And if it turns out one of those functions is too strong, they just ban that card. Yeah. You know, you can't use that anymore. And we, uh, Decipher said, we can't do that. These are collectible cards. You can't <laughs> just say, you just can't just say, you, you can't use your Darth Vader card anymore. It's too strong. You know, nobody's going to like that, right? They want to use these cards, right? So we had a rule. There's no card banning, you know, and there's no, um, uh, you know, after a while in, in Magic, they just come out with a new set and the old set is kind of disappears, yeah. you know. For for Trek and for Wars, the rule was all the cards had to be backward compatible. You know, each time you develop a new set, it needs to be balanced with all the other cards that went before. And of course, that's very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and um, because I described it as being like an ecosystem in which... Uh, you have all these animals, each card, you know, and at the same time, a bunch of new animals are evolving <laughs> and they they can't be too much stronger than the old animals, right? You have They have to all be balanced. So it keeps growing and growing and becomes unwieldy after a while. Yeah. So when we were designing Star Wars, we tried to anticipate that as much as we could. We even put a lot of symbols on certain cards that had no use currently but we thought we would use them later right okay. like the keywords and stuff keywords and uh icons of various kinds okay. you know yeah. and um also i don't remember who it was it might have been raleigh i think it was raleigh my business partner who came up with the idea of the destiny draw which ah, is yes each each card has a little number from one to seven and it's at certain times in the game, you have to try to do something and it requires some luck. But instead of rolling a dice, you pick a card off the top of your force deck and it, it has a number, right? One, one to seven. And, uh, you know, maybe you have to draw a seven to make it work or whatever. We love that idea mainly because it would allow us to help balance the deck. Because we could, for example, the Darth Vader card is going to have a low destiny number on it because we're trying to balance that card, right? It's going to be strong in its functionality, but if you have too many uh, rare cards like that in your deck, all your destiny draws are going to be ones and twos, right? Yeah, and that's independent of cards having cost also to play. Exactly. I mean, all of these things we were trying to build in balancing features that could be used going on in the future. Kind, you kind know? of just speculatively, too. Yeah, and we were just kind of hoping that would work. <laughs> And, uh, of course, we were aware we had already come in, up against some problems in Trek by that time. And we were aware that it was a difficult job. And it was inevitable that there would be cards that, you know, this card seemed really normal to us when we designed it. But we find out that if you combine it with another card and another card, you get this combination that's just <laughs> deadly, you know. And all of a sudden, everybody's making decks based on these three stupid cards that nobody cares about, you know. Yeah. There's no Luke Skywalkers out there. There are all this, these other things. It was inevitable that that would happen. And Decipher, again, they didn't want to ban any cards or do any, you know, reprint cards with different numbers on them or anything. So uh, we basically had to resort to inelegant solutions. You know, we had basically what they called magic bullets, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> We would come out with a card in the next set that would absolutely kill that, fir that first card combination. 
sometimes by name, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so if somebody, somebody tries to do that and their opponent happens to have that magic bullet, they're dead. You know, they just have no chance. Oh. And, uh, and then that didn't seem to be enough. So we had these, I forget what you called them, but they were um, rules that would allow, you know, you didn't, you couldn't wait and for your magic bullet card to come up you had to be able to go get it in your deck and bring it up right away right <laughs> so all of those things were developed and and uh, but that was the big criticism of the game that it become it became unwieldy and difficult for newcomers to get involved in because the learning curve was so high you know the yeah the basic games were were both pretty simple really but as soon as you started getting into all these special cards and and magic bullet type concepts you know you you had to learn a lot in order to compete as a player yeah that, so that's definitely one of my favorite tragic aspects of this of like the star trek game or the star wars game i guess both of them that like there were there were literally ma- like these magic bullet cards that were given away for free right where you could like mail in to decipher and they would send you four of them yeah that's right i, f- I forgot about that yeah but we gave them away for free that's insane right like <laughs> and the fact that you're still expected to put them in your deck and then you need to have extra rules for getting them out faster and like that somehow it's supposed to influence the meta except that it's incredibly swingy like on an individual like player basis if you have those cards or not it's wild should they have just let you yeah. ban cards <laughs> well of course that's what we argued for that would have made it a lot easier but they insisted that we can't do that and they never backed down from that because it was important for the collectability that you know each card be usable yeah as well as something that makes beautiful. sense and magic struggles with this right they have their list of cards that they say they'll never reprint because they're worried about hurting like the, the collectible value of it and they do all this stuff with like the, the the border color shenanigans for years to try to like preserve people's value at, with cards as collectibles right yeah which seems crazy as somebody who makes video games <laughs> we rebalance stuff forcefully push it out to everybody whether they want it or not you know like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and all these multiplayer online games. Mm, yeah, um, they'll you know you you have all these characters you can choose and then outfit them with different weapons and stuff, and quickly you find out that this new kind of character is absolutely deadly and everybody's using it. So the next uh, you know the next update that comes out basically <laughs> has something in it to balance that out. You know, so it becomes a bit of a a war of attrition but still they all suffer from power creep yeah you know definitely the early the early cards tend to be the ones that people wanted the most you know and um all the later cards i mean some cool things are saved for later sets but generally most of the cool stuff is put in up front right so all of you know all of the star wars and star trek main characters were seen up front because that's what people want and then the new cards that come along there tends to be power creep in those, which means you have to somehow be able to goose up your earlier cards, you know, to keep them balanced. And it's, I think it's probably all of these games that have a big ecosystem like this suffer from this problem. And the solutions are all kind of inelegant, you know, so yeah, I don't know what you can do about it. I The, the thing where magic does phase out sets seems kind of like anti- player and kind of hostile but i that's like the best solution i've ever heard of for this is just to literally throw stuff away and start over regularly and to make it like a thing that people get excited about yeah well they're able to do that because they have an abstract storyline yeah oh yeah that's true (laughs) you're two wizards battling so anything can happen right yeah no no amount of prequels is gonna (laughs) fix it for star wars right exactly (laughs) i wanted to ask 
you said one of the goals was to not obsolete early sets. Did they stay in print all throughout the lifetime of, I guess this goes for either Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think, I don't think they did. Maybe some of the, the basic, you know, the early sets, were, which were kind of basic starter sets at the same time, you know, I think maybe they got reprinted. I, some, I think but... they did. Oh, I forget. They did something kind of like that. I think, I mean, to some degree, I think they were collectibles. Yeah. I was I was wondering because on the one hand, for collectibles you want things to be limited in quantity and so that the people who invested early get a return on it. On the other hand, everybody wants to get Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, and so if you just stop printing them, that's not good for picking up new people, I would think. Yeah. And they would also do things like um different versions of the same key characters. Yeah. Different outfits. Yeah, like the alternate universe version of Picard and all those guys. And uh, so that allows latecomers to the game to get some of their characters, basically, without destroying the value for the collectors of the earlier stuff. You know, some of those, the early Darth Vader cards were going on eBay for a hundred bucks, you know, at the time, (laughs) which just amazed me. (laughs) Yeah. Did you anticipate that aspect of like the collectability and the stuff? So like when I was a kid, I played, I started playing card games, playing the Pokemon card game and it was not a good game. It was very simple. Um, and you could definitely stack your deck with really powerful cards and you would do better. And so there was stuff like the foil Charizards were like 20 or $40 a piece or whatever. And as a kid that blew my mind, certainly. Um, did you anticipate yeah. like that aspect of the game? Cause you, you guys got in on this kind of early, right? Uh, you got to see that magic was yeah. a huge hit, but like card games, like collectible card games had not run their course by the time that you entered the market. You guys no. were there right at the beginning. Right. We were just, just a year after magic, basically later on in the nineties, all kinds of games in this genre came out. Yeah. We, we knew that there was going to be a collectible aspect to the game. And that's one right reason why they worked so hard on the artwork of the game. Let me tell you a couple of things about that. The art department there, you know, if you look at the Star Wars cards, they're basically divided into light side and dark side. Again, it's a matter of flavor, right? So they wanted to have the um, correct feel for both of those sides in general. And of course, the dark side was epitomized by the, the Empire. And so the borders are very sleek, kind of black, glossy look, you know, like like the inside of the Death Star, mm-hmm. you know. And the um, Rebel cards, the white side, are based on the Rebels. And you look at the graphics there, they have chipped paint, you know, they look like metal with chipped paint and so on. You know, they're used and they're beat up. And all those little things were combined to help collectability. But the main thing was the quality of the images that were available from Lucasfilm at the time were deemed not good enough by Dan Burns in in the uh, art department. And what they did was they got an original copy of the three movies, which means, you know, a lot of movies go through several iterations, you know, right? Yeah. But they're copied. This was an original copy, which very close to the actual film. And they got all three of those in 80 millimeter and they bought a machine from Europe, which was an editing machine that costs about $100,000 <laughs> to uh, take very high resolution images of all uh, of any of the frames that we wanted for a card. You know, So all the frames on that film, we could turn into an extremely high resolution card. And uh, that's why the images on the Star Wars cards are fantastic. You know, a lot of people 
believe they're the best ever as far as Star Wars collectible stuff. It's wild. And that was the reason why. I mean, that machine, we only used it for like a year, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then we were on to other things. But, But again, you know, I spent a lot of time developing another big, huge spreadsheet, you know. And uh, I would say, this this guy here, you know, like in the cantina mach- uh, yeah. scene. You <laughs> we know, need one of each. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get – each one of these guys is going to be a card, right? So we try to get the best image we can and, and get the exact frame that has, has a high-resolution image of that guy. A few of them were from Lucasfilm's archives, though. Uh, some of them you'd, were cut from the movie. Mm. Um, but they they still had those images there, you know. And another cool thing was uh, a lot of the equipment and stuff like blasters and, and you know, that kind of stuff um, Lucasfilm had in their prop room, just sitting around in the prop room. And uh, so Lucasfilm kind of didn't understand why we're, we were interested in these little things you know, <laughs> that were just thrown into the movie to be in this scenery in the background, you know. But so we want a card or that. We need the lozenge pack. It's, we need a picture, a loving photo right. of, of every little thing that was in any scene. Yeah. Exactly. So we got That's permission so to go to, um, to Lucas Ranch, you know, there in California. He owns this huge valley. And you go in there, and um, there's uh, his his entire operation is there. But all you see is three or four nice-looking buildings that look like houses or something out there, like little mansions. All of the parking is underground. <laughs> and, you know, so it looks like a pristine ranch from a 1960s Western or something. But you go in there, and there's just amazing technology throughout this place. And... Uh, so we got to rummage around in their prop department and find all kinds of cool things that we made cards out of. And, and it was quite an experience going there because you'd walk down the hallway and uh, there would be a little niche with a lighted display in it. And it would say, Luke's lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> and you go down a little bit further and it would say, Indiana Jones's bullwhip. You know? <laughs> so it was quite something. I enjoyed that a lot, just going there. We we happened to be there when Lucas was writing the new trilogy mm. that became the, the you know the prequel yeah. trilogy. An exciting time to be a Star Wars fan before the prequels yeah. came out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, were you a Star Wars fan when you did this project? Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was. You know, I didn't go to conventions and dress up or anything, but I, I loved it and I've watched watched it many many times. Yeah. Um. So. You, you were talking about the mining the source material, which is an interesting thing for these IP-based games. What mm-hmm. do you think of the difference between this Star Trek as source material and Star Wars as source material? Because one is episodic and one is very, mm. uh, you know, it's just three storylines, which is much different than hundreds of episodes. And there's just more Star Trek content in some yeah. sense. Which, in so, yeah, in some ways that makes it, easier to work with um and yet at the other hand the pent-up desire for people to see more in star wars is higher you know so when we can make a card that that takes something like the background characters in the in the cantina scene and allows you to look at them closely like for the first time you know it's got a lot of power to it um i don't know i mean uh, i wasn't too involved with the artwork side of things i got a little bit on the outside of us, mainly involved with the design work. We 
we were living in Seattle at the time, but we started spending so much time in Virginia with Decipher that we decided we had to move there. <laughs> so we we did reluctantly because uh, Seattle's so beautiful around there. We uh, ended up moving to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, where Decipher was, spending a lot of time there. There was the the impetus for that was I I flew to Virginia with the idea of working for two weeks and then coming back. And I was actually there for six weeks living in a hotel. <laughs> so so uh, the, the Star Wars project itself, when we, um, once the basic bones of the game have been designed with uh, me and Raleigh and Jerry Darcy and some other people there, we did a lot more beta testing with it than we had for Star Trek. Star Trek, you know, we were on a tight deadline and we did some testing, but not really any formal beta testing. And so for this one, we we brought in a lot of known players, you know, hotshot players that we knew about and uh, had some some weekends where we, where we all got together and played the game, discussed it. That was very helpful. So it was, just, it was a real team effort for the Star Wars game. I think it showed. But the coolest thing to me was... I guess the next year, that was in 95, and the next year, 96, we had our first world championship for Star Wars. And uh, it was in Vail, Colorado. I, I got invited to go along and spectate and hang out with those guys. They had about, I don't know, 20 or 30 players there who had earned a spot. You know, they had tournaments all around the country, and then they had these finalists there. The coolest thing to me was... All of the features of the game that were rules and things like that, I was there when they were created. <laughs> and so I, I knew that we had argued and argued about some things for days at times, you know, should it be this way? Should it be that way? And we agonized over it and we eventually decided. And uh, but these guys, when I sat down and talked to them, they took all those things for, for granted as if they had been written on tablets <laughs> by God, you know, you know, brought down from, from uh, Mount Sinai. And, uh, you know, it was just as a designer, that was like, like the best compliment I ever had that, you know, <laughs> they just they thought it was so natural the way it was. How could it ever be any different? You know, that's hilarious. I I see that exact same thing with our playtesters is they'll just act like, oh, this is how it is. And this is how it will always be. It's like, no, no, we just wrote this like a month ago. Like <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not really set in stone in any way. <laughs> and yeah, there's, there's a thing about gamers where I think you just have to accept, like, if you want to be good at a game, like the people who are best at a game, maybe are the ones that are best able to just accept things as they are and then exploit it. <laughs> Yeah, they look for loopholes they can exploit. Yeah, but like you can't you can't tolerate like that sort of like lack of faith that like things could be a different way, right? It's like this is how things are, right? And which I, it blows my mind as a game designer because everything's like up in the air for us. Exactly, you know how it could have easily gone differently, but it went this way, and they just accept that <laughs> wholeheartedly. It's it's wonderful, but the, to me to me the the entire year that was in '96, the entire year of 1995 that I spent working on this was a absolute blur. <laughs> That's exactly. I have no idea what happened in 1990. There's something about OJ Simpson and a, <laughs> a white Bronco. That's about all I remember from 1995. Cause we would have, um, you know, we would work individually and then during the day and then at night we'd get together at my place 
and arrange the furniture to look at a big blank wall that I had. And we'd pr put a projector there connected to our spreadsheets of all these cards, you know. And um, the art department would, would have worked up some sample cards that we were, you know, working with. And we'd sit around and there was one guy there from the art department and it's, there was me and there's a guy there who was, you know, Jerry was there. He's looking at it from the point of view of a game player. I'm looking at it from the point of view as a designer and so on. All of us were there. We'd show one card up on the screen and we'd talk about it. <laughs> and it would go, we might spend hours talking about one card and arguing Jeez, whether the, the, the number, should this number be a four or a five? You know, or sh should we change the lore to, you know, say this? Or should we, uh, you know, add an icon, you know, and so on? And we do that for days and days and days, you know, just long hours. It was, that's why I say it's all a blur. <laughs> I was proud of the, them because Decipher is really committed to making beautiful game and a beautiful looking set you know and i really appreciated that i think it, it helped but it was so long hours we had originally been trying to make it come out i think in the fall and it didn't come out till december because we got so far behind being a little bit too perfectionist about all that stuff <laughs> the joke was uh decipher's uh slogan at the time it's called the art of great games yep. and there was a joke going around that it's the art of late games <laughs> Because of all, all of our stuff was a couple months late, you know. <laughs> That's great. Okay, I need to take a quick break. And then I'll come back and ask you a couple more rapid fire questions and we'll wrap this up. Okay. It's very important during these breaks to uh, resist the temptation to ask questions that aren't going to be usable on the uh, real recording. Okay, so my biggest question about designing a Star Wars game <laughs> is how do you because it's just like the, the Star Trek game right like you said Star Trek is about going on adventures but you have to define what the range of adventures that you can go on like what what is what is possible what is the space of adventures so when you're like looking at a new hope how do you decide you know, can I pack a bunch of Tuscan Raiders up onto a TIE fighter and fly them to the Death Star and fight there? <laughs> right. How do you decide whether that is, you know, because if you were making a game that only depicted what happened in A New Hope, then it would be really limited. So you're trying to make yeah. like a space of like stuff that like could have been in the movie or something. Exactly. Yeah, we had those kind of arguments. <laughs> we Somebody would have a card and, and we'd be looking at it and say, you realize, of course, that once you do that, Tuscan Raiders can get a hold of this thing and go around causing havoc across the galaxy. You know, and that's a little silly in a lot of ways. But it wasn't like it was impossible, and it would be kind of cool if it did happen, you know. <laughs> so it's a matter of judgment, I guess. Uh, things that seem uh, possible, if silly, might still be allowed. But things that are just, you know, crazy or impossible you can't allow that so what are some things that you would have ruled out like on those grounds oh i don't know i can't think of any examples right now because i mean like only like like a v like i think like a ship has to have a pilot right and then so there's like a pilot property that has to be on a unit so like a tuscan raider can't pilot a spaceship but they could be passengers right. on a spaceship that's piloted by somebody else yeah well you know again <laughs> to me it's a matter of flavor yeah. right if the flavor fits even if it's a little weird that's what you want you're, you're never going to 
we, we were never trying to simulate yeah. the movie, like you said, Keith, mm-hmm. um, because if you did, the play would just be recapitulating what happened in the movie. And, right. um, you know, you might as well play a video game then. <laughs> but this allows you to make things happen that could never happen. And you're making it happen, not the designer. You know, if you play like a Star Wars you know, what's the latest Star Wars online game? I forget. Um, Battlegrounds or something. Yeah. They have set the location, who's there, you know, you know how you battle, all that kind of stuff. And that's all you're doing because you're just playing in the world that they created. But the cool thing about our game was it's providing you with basic elements and you can kind of play with them creatively and, and have, you know decks of cards that feature Mott the Barber going around, you know, or something, <laughs> who, who knows what it is. There's a lot of crazy card uh, decks you would hear about that, that uh, sounded kind of ridiculous at first, but nobody seemed to care because it seemed like it could happen. Yeah. One of the remarkable <laughs> things about the Star Wars game is that there's no limit on the number of, like, the quantities of cards that you can put in your deck. I think generally, I don't know if that's true for every card, but you can definitely have a deck that's like has 20 Jawas in it, and that is okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we wanted to allow those things. Uh, I think we we had didn't we have some symbols that would limit the number you have? Uh, I, yeah, it, I th- some of them you can only have one of of those. But I think so. I think you could only have one major character f- for each major character or something. But um, yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, <laughs> that's all fun. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it's on theme, even if it's not necessarily a simulation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bunch of Ewoks, you know, get out there and. <laughs> yeah. You know, you saw that in the yeah. movie, right? They, they beat, beat up the... Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's just a really interesting question to me because, you know, who says a Tuscan... You, you, what you said is, if it seemed possible, then it was allowed. But it's it's kind of wacky to try to infer that from the limited material that's available. Like, how do you decide that a Tuscan Raider can fly a TIE fighter or not? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but people have a really strong sense of, like, what should happen and should be possible in Star Wars or not, somehow. I don't know where you know, it comes what from. What happens, though, is when I play um, this game, I was I was very mediocre when I played this, you know, <laughs> this game. I, when I played, you know, the guys at Decipher who worked and did most of the work on it, they were all really good players. And whenever I played them, they would just crush me all the time. <laughs> and, and the reason was I like to try, kind of create decks that weren't they necessarily meant to win the game. You know, they weren't some kind of super strong deck. They were just a storytelling deck. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to have I wanted to have groups of characters that I liked together and and see if I could win with them. You know, I like to have the Enterprise crew. You know, and stuff like that. Interesting. And a lot of people who play the game do that. They don't try to maximize the winability of their deck. You know, and so forth. They're just. They want to kind of, you know, feel a story that's close to what they saw in the show or in the movie. They would kind of balk at some playing somebody who's got a <laughs> you know, super Tuscan Raider deck. But, um, but you know, there's other people who enjoy maximizing the game and making the most efficient use of this or that and uh, trying to find those loopholes that allow a weird combination of cards to be killer, you know. And we wanted to allow that also, right? So there's an element in the game that um, uh, when you draw a destiny card, it goes on the bottom of your deck, right? So if you are a good card counter, like a card counter in (laughs) in 21 from Las Vegas, you know when that card is going to come back up to the top of your deck. And you'll know what it, you know, if it was a seven, you know that that would be a great time to 
draw a destiny card and get a seven with it, right? So you can be an extremely good player, and the good players are like that. And we wanted to have that too, you know. So we wanted to have, be able to play kind of a storyline, you know. Just you don't really care if you win or lose. You're just playing with your favorite characters. That's what most people do when they just play offhand games with it. But we also wanted to have the strategy as well, and those are the decks that had crazy combinations of cards. Was the was the card counting thing deliberate? Because I definitely got a sense that that was possible when we were playing it recently. Yeah, yeah. I mean... That's a, that's a wild mechanic for a card game, like a collectible card game. Yeah, well, we were aware that that was possible, and, and we, we discussed it and said, well, it's good, isn't it? Why wouldn't that be good, you know? Yeah. That just means you're a good player. If you're that smart, you could take care of it, you know? Interesting. Okay, so... um. Let me get a little gossipy. So I, I've read that for a while, for a brief period of time, the Star Wars card game was like outselling Magic or like had more play in some in some metric by some magazine or something that like the Star yeah. Wars card game was number one. Like, right. was there, did you guys feel like there was a rivalry between you and Magic? No, uh, I didn't. Um, we, uh, we had dinner with Richard Garfield one night atop the Space Needle. It was a very nice dinner. Uh, they didn't feel any rivalry from their side and neither did we i mean i felt like he had created a genre Mm -hmm. and but our game was so different from theirs that i didn't feel like it was any kind of really direct rivalry going on it was really uh, all it was doing was expanding the genre and helping everybody yeah um later on you there was a lot of knockoff games that were more more in the magic style and <laughs> most of those didn't work very well mm-hmm. and there was some there's also many clever variations on that theme and i don't know maybe they still are i haven't really watched what's going on in that genre for a while but have you seen hearthstone i i've seen it online it, it blows my mind i don't know how they can play it so fast <laughs> <laughs> it's so hearthstone's kind of like simplified it's like magic redesigned for the computer because there's like computer yeah. magic but it's crazy because you still have to track like turn phases and stuff which is really like not great and you have to say like yes i am done with this turn phase you know or like no i would not like to interrupt the other player at this time versus hearthstone just does yeah. away with all of that and so you really just like play it in an intuitive computer way I see. But the game, yeah. like, it's got the same kind of, like, you play as two heroes, you're trying to destroy the other hero directly, but their creatures get in the way, and, like, it's very magic-like, which... And almost, yeah. I feel like now, so many card games are, like, magic, right? Every, like, almost every digital card game, like, online, is actually a rip-off of Hearthstone, which is kind of a rip-off of magic, right? Yeah. I, I guess, so, one, one of the things I wanted to talk about earlier is you mentioned that, like, the force mechanic in the game and how you lose by being, like, decked by losing your deck running out of cards yeah. was that something that you guys had kind of picked up from playing other games or did, was that just something you invented from like first principles based on the theme based on first principles yeah i mean we arrived at that by talking about what is the flavor of star wars in essence yeah right you know it's it, trek it's doing missions yeah and 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 flying around but in uh, star wars yeah it's all about the force, yeah. right? Yeah, it's an energy that flows between all living things and binds the universe yeah. together, yeah. Uh, Raleigh, my business partner, and I had certain theories about game design, you know, and one of them was the concept of elegance. Mm. And Raleigh, in particular, was a stickler <laughs> for elegance. I mean, if he could figure a way to make something double up its function and get rid of one little rule out of the rule book, he was ecstatic, you know. <laughs> And he hated any rule that was a negative rule that said, you can't do this. Ah, okay. You know, yep. He wanted all the rules to be positive rules, and he wanted everything to just have elegant simplicity, but the resulting 
ramifications of the rules created lots of scope for strategy and stuff. I retired from the game business in 2002, but he kept on doing it and he created some many interesting games. But when you have a, a card game, something that is, you know, more or less a, a card game, there's so many clever ways you can use the cards besides just turning one over and, you know, comparing it, you know, the deck can be used as a countdown device or it can be used as a randomization device where you can put things in somebody's deck or take things out of somebody's deck. You can have a hand of cards and you have more than one pile. There's so many things you can do with cards. And I think about all of them have been tried <laughs> during this genre over the last 20 years, but um, they're all very clever. But, you know, to me, the my main contribution to this game was the, the way the force worked, you know, yeah. which... I'm kind of proud of because I thought that was, I thought it worked beautifully to try to simulate the flavor, again, the, uh, that word, the flavor of the, the force in the play. Yeah. Can, okay. So I, I have a response to that. So this is, this, it might sound like a criticism, but it's definitely not. So, cause it is, it is kind of an elegant mechanic, but it's also complicated. And yeah. when I like coming off of like Pokemon, which is very simple, like I, I, I was obsessed with Star Wars as a kid and I picked up the starter set for this game and could not for the life of me understand it. And it wasn't until college yeah. when I was friends with Keith and Keith had a bunch of the cards that we actually played it and I was actually able to understand the mechanics. And even then it's kind of hard to like remember. It's it's kind of complicated. And I and I I can't help but feel like that definitely like there's probably a lot of people who well, there's probably some people who bought these cards and and like kind of had a hard time cracking the game, especially combined with the fact that yeah. there was like a starter set but there weren't theme decks for it really. I think they might have added them later, but originally, like, like if you bought like a one of those big, like a big booster box, or like not like a booster box, like if if you bought a a sixty card deck of the Star Wars or Star Trek card games, you just got sixty random cards. Which the fact that yeah. you have to engage with deck building as opposed to like like Magic has they've they've run super hard on both starter sets and theme decks, and they still sell tons of theme decks. Yeah. Pokemon offered tons of theme decks. That's obviously more of like a business decision than a like a, a design decision but like what's like, yeah what do, what do you think about well, that? those i think that's legitimate it is relatively complicated i think when it first came out it was not bad but you know as it as it continued to grow like i said the ecosystem keeps evolving and it gets worse and worse <laughs> uh, but that was the parameter that we had to start with that um our first priority was theme second priority was simplicity interesting so didn't have as much of the elegance because our experience was that the fans of this game were so into it that they could handle more complexity than than normally i would want to put in to the rules yeah and magic is fairly complex too like that is not an easy game to start playing teaching people no, magic no. is difficult yeah I'm, it's kind of part and parcel with the whole concept of you know deck building and things like that is difficult concept by itself yeah uh, Decipher did try to address those concerns, and they did, I think, come out with starter decks. And um, later on, when the first prequel movie came out, we had a whole set called um, uh, Young Jedi, I think it was called. <laughs> did you work on that? I did work on that. Okay. And um, I, I liked the way that worked, but the, the idea was that it was a simplified game. And then we had also, after that, we came out with a game more along the usual lines so yeah they tried to, to work on that because that is a legitimate concern yeah yeah and it's interesting too because I, I i also played the young jedi game and in some ways it was too simple 
<laughs> right? Yeah. Which is like bizarre. Like, and I think this is one of the difficulties of making games, especially when like you're at a period in time where games are still like sort of masquerading as something that's for kids, when in reality they're being played increasingly by more and more adults. That like yeah. you're gonna make a game for kids and you have adults that are mad that it's too simple, and then you make a game that's like <laughs> for adults, and then like kids can't play it, and people are like, Oh, I can't play, you know, yeah, you, <laughs> you're kind of screwed either way. Um yeah yeah you have to be confident about who your target audience is and stick with it <laughs> right well young jedi was aimed at a younger audience and simpler audience people who just wanted a quick battle you know it was just a battle game sort of more like magic really mm -hmm. but um with totally different mechanic but yeah i think it's legitimate in general you want to maximize simplicity and maximize the strategy that comes out of it but it's not so easy to do that, especially when you have to also um, factor in the fact that you're going to have 600 different cards or something in this game, you yeah. know? Okay, so uh, so there's just a really random off-the-cuff question, but Tarkin Seeker. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of cards in the Star Wars card game that specifically target other cards. And, like, some of them are, are magic bullets, but... Like there's a card called like Tarkin Seeker, which specifically can tar like target Grand Moff Tarkin, and it was released in the first set. Really, I don't even remember uh, okay. that. <laughs> yeah, there's like it's. I mean, maybe that just came out of playtesting the first set. I'm not sure, but um, this is one of the things I always thought was really remarkable about this game is that like it's not afraid to call out other cards by name. Yeah, yeah. And that's like that's. Well, we knew that that was going to be something we were going to have to do maybe we thought we should do it once in the first set so people would get used to it i oh, don't know interesting it does kind of feel like a tutorial for getting yeah like getting used to that it's it's it seems like relatively low risk right if there's a card that kills a specific other card it's not that big of a deal but it's also generally mm -hmm. useful and oh yeah okay right i could see that yeah that makes sense um let me see. Okay, and then this is another little thing I love is okay. So obviously, like the uh, the Star Wars card game is known for it has like lots of joke cards in it. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's one card. Oh god, it's, I forgot what it said it was in, but it was it's talking about. I think it's like bluffs, like in the desert, like cliff faces or whatever. But it's also like the mechanic is about bluffing. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like so there's like pun like deep puns like in wordplay in the cards. So that that's definitely something oh, yeah. that people know about this. I, I'm guessing that was just like your guys like attitude. <laughs> Yeah, we had a lot of fun designing those cards. And like I said, a lot of late nights <laughs> and coming up with goofy things. Like, for example, I think on C-3PO's card, it says something like he's X number of years old and has never had a memory wipe as far as he knows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? Yep. But, um, we enjoyed doing things like that. And, you know, there were also a lot of Easter eggs in, in those sets. I don't know if you've seen... Uh, any of the lists of the Easter eggs, but the art department would put in, you know, seven or eight funny little Easter eggs in the, in somewhere in the images or on the card. I did not know that. I'll have to look that up. Uh, so a related thing to the the jokes on cards are like like putting like games within games. Like I think there's there's like rules for hollow chess in like one of the first expansions where one of the locations you can play is a hollow chess board. And then there's a whole bunch of abilities that just happen to be in the first set that were all the hollow chess monsters. And then they're like, Oh, you can yeah. actually play them as a creature to the hollow chess board where their destiny or one of their other stats or whatever is their strength and like yeah. stuff like that. I'm guessing there's like Sabacc rules show up at some point <laughs> just because you can't do star Wars without something like that. Right. And so, I mean, it's, what's I, I, I yeah. love like games within games. I've been obsessed. Like all of our, the last like, like the last like five games we've done 
all have like solitaire mini games that are like embedded within it. And like, I love games within games. Uh, yeah, I do too. And what we particularly liked was anticipating something that is not even in the game yet, but you see it in the, it's already on the cards. They're ready to go for something that won't be out till next year, you know? Yeah. Uh, decipher sensibility they just loved doing that <laughs> because it would create curiosity you know yeah people people would be on the uh, message boards you know debating <laughs> you know how's that gonna work you know wow maybe i should get some more of these and have more you know so we don't run out because it's going to be a big deal you know things like that <laughs> so we love doing that some of them might not have actually gone anywhere i think some of the things we anticipated never came to pass or came came about differently than we were thinking they would at least it still works though from getting people excited that's really fun i mean that's that's like a really cool thing yeah i mean that was that was decipher's kind of signature they loved to do surprising little extra things that add to the flavor of something it's like having a cameo in a movie you know yeah uh you know why is um you know why is don knots suddenly you know <laughs> show up in this, in this whole movie he's just there for five seconds what's that about you know? yeah yeah that's really cool that's really playful people enjoy getting little in jokes like that uh keith do you have anything else because i have a, a final question Nope, I, I asked everything I had. Okay, so final question is, so you, you mentioned that in 2002, you retired from the games business. So this mm -hmm. is something I obviously think a lot about, but how do you exit the games business? Like, what what's it like to retire from games? Well, it's really was retiring from the, the six or seven years of just nonstop working on those card game projects that we had. Yeah. Which, you know... Uh, took a lot out of me you know we were all exhausted from it part of the situation was that um, decipher had lost its license for star wars mm, that's right do you guys do you guys know the story behind that no as it have to oh i i could kind of guess but you can this is right because they went on to turn the star wars game into just wars which was like their own ip or something now they tried that yeah <laughs> um what happened was something very disappointing to me you know, I think, personally, I think that George Lucas, when he saw how much money he could make off Ewoks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he decided that the licensing department was critical, right? Yeah. And, it would, and he, he, all his future movie scripts had Ewok-type things in them, right? Because <laughs> they, they would make cuddly critters for Hasbro to make and stuff. And um, so the, he gave the licensing department there a lot of authority. And... Uh, when the first new movie came out, the episode one, we got the license for that. It was very expensive, but, you know, uh, that's all right. And uh, it did well. And we were looking forward to doing, you know, the next two. But uh, Hasbro jumped in and started bidding mm. on doing it. Yeah. And, of course, Hasbro, you know, Decipher is just a medium-sized company. They had quite a lot of resources, but couldn't compete with Hasbro. And, uh, you know, so Warren would go to Lucasfilm and, you know, up his offer and Hasbro would just top it, you know. And uh, Lucasfilm, disappointingly to me, they showed no loyalty to Decipher at all. Because Decipher had created for them a whole genre of Star Wars spinoff products that hadn't existed before. You know, it was millions of dollars of extra money for... yeah. Lucasfilm, you'd think they could show a little bit of loyalty, right? But, you know, Hasbro offered 
a million dollars more, you know, whatever it was. And the fans, you know, abandoned it. You know, they they were not going to play Hasbro's version. They liked the Cypher's version. And so Hasbro's, you know, predictably it tanked right off right off the bat. Yeah. And uh and it killed this game, you know, if it hadn't have been for that, they'd probably still be making these cards, you know, because eventually had three more movies and um, lots of in-between movies and things. I would have loved to make, I remarked the other day, this um, movie Rogue One, you know, mm, that yeah. leads leads right up into, into episode four. I would have loved to make card set with those characters in it. Yeah. And we would have, you know, if we still had the license, but it kind of got stolen and it disappointed me when Lucasfilm showed no loyalty like that. And uh, that happened all around 2001 in that time period. So that's one reason why I said, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of this. I'm tired of doing this stuff. Yeah. We had Hasbro already bought Wizards of the Coast by then? I don't think so. Well, maybe. Let's see. Acquisition by... Oh, no. So, no 1999. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, they're, the version they came out with was a Hasbro-ish product to my mind. Yeah. You know, it was not clever like uh, the usual Wizards of the Coast stuff. Yeah. I guess that was their idea that they were going to do that, but the fans did not appreciate it. You know, the fans of our game. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they were kind of angry with Hasbro and said they were going to boycott the game and so forth, and, and nobody bought it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it just all died. Especially by that point, like, people who've been playing the game for years and years and collecting the cards, like, that's like saying, like, oh, we'll just buy the Magic IP and make a new card game that has the Magic IP, and it won't be, like, Magic exactly. at all. Like, that's <laughs> Right. It's a pretty amateur move. <laughs> yeah. So that was real disappointing. And uh, that was why I decided to, to drop out Whatever happened, is Decipher still around? Technically, yes, but the f- problem, they had some really bad luck. The uh, chief financial officer there embezzled Ooh. millions of dollars from them and did it right at, at this crucial time when they had lost the Star Wars thing. Not only did he embez- embezzle all this money, but he tried to cover it up by s- spending money you know, without telling anybody, you know, he's just spending incredible amounts, millions of dollars on all this stuff, trying to drive them bankrupt in order to cover up his crime, you know? (laughs) And Oh my God. I know it was, it was terrible. And, um, the, the result of it, uh, you know, the decipher was making so much money at that time that he couldn't bankrupt them. You know, he, he would spend, like an extra million dollars for some piece of computer equipment that got put in a warehouse somewhere or something. And they would just make another million dollars. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was wacky. It was crazy. It was, he had uh, bamboozled some people in the finance department so that they only trusted him and not the, hmm. you know, the other people, you know, and so he was getting away with murder there. And um, they eventually, when they lost the Hasbro deal, their income stream dropped and then the the embezzlement took hold and really kind of crunched the company they still worked for he's they still stayed around for quite a while actually and technically they are still around uh, but they just haven't been done much lately it's a real shame yeah so many creative things like just like 
if you go back you can actually go access their old website through um the wayback machine on archive.org and you can oh really yeah and it's, it's a beautiful website it's like you got like crazy image map like a spatial like it's like you're in a in virtual reality going to the different parts of their company it's wild i'll, I'll link to it on the podcast and i'll send you a link but it's 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 just there there's so much cre- it's it's apparent how much creativity there is there and, and that's always the thing that yeah. I, I remember that like the most about all of their products yeah, I mean, they did more than these games. They did lots of other things, too, and they were all very creative. They were the most creative game company around, I think. And it was a real shame that they got stabbed in the heart by this guy. Wow. Okay, well, that's... <laughs> what have we learned here? <laughs> that guy eventually went to jail for six years, but I didn't think that was enough. <laughs> he should have been in solitary confinement or something for the rest of his life. Wow. <laughs> Because, you know, this was a company with 50 or 60 people that basically got put out of business by this one guy. Yeah. And a lot of loyal fans. And yeah, it's terrible. Okay. Any, uh, anything you want to leave on a, on a a lighter note? (laughs) (laughs) I I do want to mention that there are, if there are people who are out there who were fans of this game, but might not know there's a um, volunteer organizations, keep it going Mm, even now called the for trek is called the continuing committee and um which i think their their website is trekcc.org and they have been doing a fantastic job of keeping the game going and adding new cards and like tons of virtual expansion blocks and stuff yes and they're amazing and there's a similar group for the star wars game yeah they, they even hold tournaments and they have continued to have championship tournaments up through last year so wow. they're doing great they've uh, they've managed to consolidate the rules into a clean hundred pages or so <laughs> yeah <laughs> i tried reading the rule books and you really you have to like read the beginner's rule book because there there is like a it's it's maybe it's not 100 pages but it it feels like 100 pages of just so many rules and interactions between all the different crazy things that people came up with over the years both like officially yeah. and unofficially it's it's wild there's a tendency to stack new ideas on top of the old one, you know, and it gets unwieldy. But um, they do a great job of keeping it alive and, and relatively fresh. So if you if you hear this and you used to play these games, why don't you see if you can uh, find them online and see what they're up to. Oh, I, I did have one more question. Have you ever worked on any video games? Um, just one or two, and they, it was back in the 90s. Nothing, nothing, nothing interesting. <laughs> no, 